1: Greetings, folks. My name is Dr. Jamar Tisby. Welcome to another episode of Footnotes. Now, the way Footnotes began, if you are a longtime listener, we usually do like current events things, and I still love doing that. I'm going to give you hot takes every now and again, but I'm excited that in this iteration, I get to have on more guests and do more interviews, and that's exactly what you're getting today with my friend, John Ward. Welcome to Footnotes.
0: Dr. Tisby, it's good to see you. I did not Call you Dr. Tisby when we first met, and so it's great to great to see you yes. with that honorific.
1: I passed that milestone, and it will forever be there. Nobody can take it away. I'm glad for that. Um, I want to give folks a quick introduction to who you are. This is straight from his bio. John Ward is a senior political correspondent for Yahoo News and author of Testimony. Inside the Evangelical Movement That Failed a Generation. That's what we're going to be talking about today. That's what brings him to the show today. That is forthcoming in April. You're going to hear more about it soon. But he's also the author of the book Camelot's End, Kennedy V. Carter and the Fight That Broke the Democratic Party. Now, that was published in 2019, but it's immediately relevant as we record this. It looks like Jimmy Carter, he's in hospice, looks like he's at the end of his life. So John, have you had any contact with the family or or President Carter since uh this latest development in his health?
0: I've been in touch with somebody down there who's close with the family uh just to send well wishes um and true to form uh President Carter, you know, he went into hospice. It's been several weeks now and he is still kicking. He is a stubborn stubborn man and uh I say that Mostly in praise of him because I admire him a lot. Um, but if people don't want to, if they want to learn more about Jimmy Carter, uh, there are some really good biographies out there. If people want to go really deep, uh, Kai Bird and Jonathan Alter put out a, uh, each put out a biography of Carter in the last five years. Um, but my book is a dual biography of Jimmy Carter and Ted Kennedy uh, in the first third or half of the book. And so if you want to get your feet wet, In in a mini bio of Jimmy Carter, it's there in Camelot's end. Yeah.
1: Beautiful. And I'm a big fan of Substack. I have my own Substack, also called Footnotes, but you have a Substack as well called Border Stalkers. So if they want to keep up with your work, uh, I would invite you to subscribe to the Substack Border Stalkers with John Ward. So let's get into it. You've got this book coming out uh, April. April 18th. April yes, 18th. All right, April 18th. And I'm always interested in book titles. So this one's called Testimony Inside the Evangelical Movement that Failed a Generation. Were there other titles in the running? What were some of those?
0: You know, for a long time I just called the book Grown Up Evangelical and I never really figured that, that would be the title. And then Testimony came to me at some point um and it worked. And then the subtitle was where we kind of did some some work back and forth. And that came mostly from the publisher. and then I kind of tweaked it a little bit. Um,
1: yeah, so and yeah. and that tells it's ve- it's a very accurate title testimony because um, mm-hmm. the format of this book isn't just like straightforward reporting. it's it's your testimony. It's your story, right?
0: The word actually came out as I was writing the intro. The introduction because at some point in the introduction I actually used that line this is my testimony
1: mm-hmm.
0: that was when I kind of realized that would be a good title for the book Um, and the publisher liked it so we kind of just went with it
1: absolutely I'm glad you did thinking more about the title you say you know inside the evangelical movement that failed a generation so we'll talk more about the movement part in just a second let's talk yeah. about the evangelical part <laughs> I'm a historian there are never ending, sometimes exhausting conversations or debates about what is an evangelical, how you describe them. Um, And as exhausting as those conversations are, they're, they're still pertinent. I mean, it's sort of this amorphous term that can be a lot of different things to a lot of different people, and maybe not a definition, but I'm curious, you know, how you would explain what an evangelical is.
0: I mean, I'm sure you're familiar with the Babington quadrilateral, which is a set of not theological statements, but I don't know. Would those be ecc- ecclesiog- ecclesiological? Or I'm, I can't even say the word.
1: Um, <laughs> yeah, ecclesiastic. How would, how would you, theological statements, theological commitments, yeah. uh, you could probably say.
0: Hmm. Yeah, and I don't know all of them off the top of my head. I know that one of them is kind of biblical inerrancy. Another one would be um proselytization or evangelism um and uh so i i would say that's one way to define an evangelical and and then i think over the last however many years evangelicals as a term has really shifted away from something that's focused on either a set of theological concerns or a set of um religious beliefs and it's shifted towards just more of a political identity Mm -hmm. um and part of that is because of evangelicals themselves part of that is also because of probably the media and people who study religion kind of talking about evangelicals through the lens of politics Mm -hmm. more often so it's become more and more seen as like a voting block of generally and Cons- politically conservative, Republican voting, largely white uh, religious folks, I would say.
1: That's a pretty good description, uh, certainly of its its modern manifestation. I think that's helpful. And we'll get into a little bit of like the history or your history, at least with, with evangelicalism, that I think will flesh out the description some more. Um, but just to park here on... Terms on 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 kind of definitions or descriptions. I'm always sort of contemplating the mm-hmm. verbiage of evangelical or evangelicalism and fundamentalism. Mm-hmm. Historically, there was a difference. Uh, mm-hmm. Evangelicalism sort of arose in the first third of the 20th century, kind of as a response to you know these debates on evolution and and science and um the fundamentals this whole set of books that pretty narrowly define christianity and evangelical was supposed to be a sort of more outward facing engaged with the culture softer in some senses form of christianity that wasn't so dogmatic Mm -hmm. maybe it's changed i'm just wondering you know from your perspective as a worker of words um do you think there is a difference between evangelical and fundamental, evangelicalism and fundamentalism uh, today? How would you sort of use those terms differently, or are they kind of interchangeable?
0: Yeah, and these, as, as you're getting at, these terms are shifting over time. Mm-hmm. Uh, the evangelicalism you're just describing is kind of the evangelicalism of Billy Graham, <clears is>
1: that,
0: <throat> which was a response to the fundamentalist movement um, in a lot of ways. Um, and I think it was Jerry Falwell uh, Sr., even in the 70s and even maybe into the 80s, who I think did claim, I don't know when he stopped, to be fair, but at a certain point, I'm pretty sure he claimed the term fundamentalist, mm-hmm. but then became part of the moral majority political movement and kind of shifted into that evangelical uh, dimension. <clears throat> and fundamentalist can can mean two quite different not different things but distinct things um in terms of that religious movement where people self-identified as fundamentalists Mm -hmm. versus the way i would more generally use the term which is um a fundamentalist in my view if i'm applying the term broadly would be someone who probably has two major characteristics kind of at the foundation of everything one would be like by uh believing in the literal truth of the Bible. and I've at times used the term hyperliteralism because you know i I think the whole debate over how you read the Bible is a is a really good one to have. And I don't want to um, cast dispersions on people who believe that every word is the literal word of God, and yet they interpret the Bible through its literary genre. I think that's kind of an interesting category of folks, mm. you know, they're, they're interpreting Proverbs or, or Psalms as poet poems, but they think it's literally true, in a in a way, I think that's a, an interesting, you know, group. And then hyper-literalists would be somebody who read the Psalms or whatever part of the Bible they want to read this way and read it as, you know, a direct command from God. That would be like hyper-literalism. So fundamentalists would be, literal to hyperliteralist on the bible and then in general their kind of worldview on life would be tending to be more binary more black and white either or rather than somebody who's looking for nuance trying to understand how things can be both and mm. um and, and 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 more comfortable with areas of gray and and uh un- being unclear on some things
1: right So then, and we'll get more into this, but the evangelical movement that you're talking about would would definitely have some strong strains of fundamentalism, according to that sort of latter description Mm -hmm. that you gave. Yeah,
0: correct. Yeah. Yeah, the broader, more general description of fundamentalism would certainly characterize many evangelicals. However, I think the strength of the term personally is that there are fundamentalists of that flavor in probably every point of view known to man. Because mm-hmm. if you're taking your point of view, and you're saying, "I know I'm right. I know other people are wrong, and I don't really have much question about that," to me, that's a fundamentalist.
1: Yeah. Ooh, that's that that indicts all of us in in some way, shape, or form, or all of our communities. Um, so you talk about in in the in the subtitle the evangelical movement uh describe that movement what are you talking about you know the churches the 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 time period the whatever of of this movement so
0: the the movement that failed a generation that that subtitle clearly demarcates a period in time in a, in a specific generation which would be generally speaking my generation I'm in my mid-40s born in 1977 my parents started a church with some friends in the 70s uh it began as a Bible study and then became a church and then they planted other churches and they had a group of um, several dozen churches in the U S and in other countries. Um, probably. I don't, I don't know if it's fair to call it a denomination. Probably not. It probably wasn't that significant, but maybe a mini denomination. Mm. I don't even know what the class, what the scale is needed to become a denomination. Right. Um, and where they were coming from was a rejection of the uh, mainline pro- uh, Protestant denominations and and sort of traditional Catholic um, church from that post-World War II era. Um, they were also, even though they were coming out of the sixties and the hippie movement and had a lot of characteristics of the hippie movement, they were also reacting against parts of the hippie movement too, because there was a feeling of, you know, disappointment, I think with parts of, the free love ethos of the 60s. And certainly at the end of the 60s and into the early 70s, uh, American life is is pretty unsettled um, and people are increasingly disturbed about the state of the country. You have all of the uh, racial unrest um, in the late 60s. Uh, you have the assassination of Martin Luther King in 1968, assassination of Bobby Kennedy in 1968 and the escalation of the Vietnam war. So there's a lot of things happening during this period that while my parents' generation, you know, my parents were both, both born in 1953. And so they kind of came in at the tail end of the sixties and they were looking, they were coming out of that. They were influenced by it, but they were also looking for more stability. And so they incorporated uh, parts of hippie culture with um, this, new kind of move of christianity which was called the jesus movement there's a movie out right now called the jesus revolution which portrays some of that and um and so they had these bible studies they were caught up in something very very significant and impactful in their lives and then they started church and then they all started getting married and having kids and so my story kind of traces the evolution kind of from the late seventies to now of that, of that movement.
1: So this is really like the Jesus movement people and the, the outgrowth as they get a bit more organized, starting churches, starting this network of churches. And, and that's really sort of the, the trail and the strain of evangelicalism that you follow as you give your own personal testimony. Um, so you grew up in a large family, this, and you were the son of a pastor, and you were heavily involved in church life. One of the ways that you describe that world is by saying certainty disguised as faith. It turns out can take people to some bizarre places. <laughs> can you unpack that quote and maybe give us a, a story or two from your testimony that 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 led you to, to you know, saying something like that that leads you to bizarre places?
0: Yeah, I mean, uh, probably the best example from my upbringing would be the way that people um, took things like, The idea of prophecy or words of knowledge or God speaking to them. Um, And this could have been a a church leader or like a pastor or it could have been a a lay member, but there was a lot of room to kind of feel a sensation or think a thought and then interpret that as God speaking to you. Mm. I'm not here to say that God wasn't speaking to those people. Um, I don't know. But neither did they. (laughs) And so there was an over uh, eagerness, I think, to assume that God was speaking to all of these people, especially the leaders. And the thing to me about faith that makes it faith is that you can't know for, you need faith to believe in things that you can't know for sure. Mm -hmm. um, That you can't prove. And so where it gets tricky is when people are taking things that they actually don't know for sure, seizing onto them by faith, but then having a certainty about them that actually becomes something other than faith. Hmm. Um, because I think one of the key ingredients of faith is holding on to that sense of, I hope this is true. And I believe I have the gift to, of faith to believe that it's true. I can't prove that it's true. Hmm. And so I need to hold it with a bit of humility and to hold it lightly. And so, That's how it would apply to my upbringing. And then I think when you transition that whole approach to knowledge into the political realm, it has unfortunate consequences because it leads people to take political positions, whether it's on their own intuition or on the advice of people they trust, and I think it, it leads people to, to not do their due diligence of of mm. really look, applying scrutiny to their own position, um, whether that's on theology or whether it's on politics. And so I think that misapplication of faith, that taking faith out of the realm of faith into the realm of certainty, uh, had by bad consequences in church because people were given the ability to, to have too much power over other people by saying, God told me this. Mm. Um and it's had bad, bad, bad fruit in politics as well because I, I think it's bred bad habits in a lot of evangelical culture of of not really being deliberate and thorough, um, intentional about how we think about living out our faith in politics.
1: That is so interesting. The resonances there. I was um, I was at a a small dinner gathering of. Essentially, concerned Christian citizens, and 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 I mean that in the most positive way, not in like this sort of narrow minded fundamentalist way. And uh, they were they were talking about how many of their friends and relatives had just been sucked into like the Fox News vortex or or similar outlets. And one of the things that that uh, one person there said is they so uncritically accept whatever they're hearing. From these people, just because they're these people or these voices that they trust, and they're not doing anything near fact checking or even cross checking the information with other news outlets or sources or things like that. And this idea of certainty, and you even describe it in your definition of fundamentalism, is is just so central, I think, to how it failed a generation. Uh, where it didn't breed inquiry, if you will, um, or yeah, it didn't even make other, room for uncertainty.
0: The other element here is that there was something quite powerful about what my parents experienced in the '70s, mm. and I've made this point elsewhere. But when you have a really um, a powerful experience that engages your emotions, gives you a lot of purpose in your life, infuses your identity with a higher sense of meaning. That can, like, I I would say, and and you're young, yeah. I would say, like, I would say any experience like that, religious or not, at a young age, um, can create some real challenges later in life. I would even say any amount of like massive success could be comparable early in life because Mm. you tend to assume one of two, or maybe both of these things that, um, you you have a lot of the answers and you're smarter than other people or and and or um that what worked then will work later on and um and those two things can combine i'm smarter what we'll worked before will work so we're going to keep the same playbook over and over and over again
1: yeah
0: that that does not set you up to be adaptable as as life comes at you
1: and you talk about the insularity of the church community that you were in, so it's almost like you, you, a, a hermetically sealed from perspectives and people that would start to shake up that certainty in positive ways. So, tell us about tell us about your life, just like in this really tight knit community, to to put it positively. Um, how was it this three hundred and sixty degree uh, consistent messaging, really?
0: I, I do think a lot of this goes back to some priors, which like the the unsaid sort of assumptions that that feed into how you make your decisions. What I mean by that is I think a lot of what shaped our church's mindset about the world outside of church mm-hmm. was the Hal Lindsey uh, book, The Late Great Planet Earth. Yes, and all that, all of that, um, left behind rapture based mentality about the end times that was that was very popular Mm -hmm. in the Um, seventies. I I think Hal Lindsey's book sold. I'm not clear exactly on this, but I think it sold well over a million copies, and um, and there were there were movies made about this. Then there were then the Left Behind movies made and books written in the nineties. I think, and. What that does is it creates a mindset of, okay, our job as Christians is to um, stay away from people who are not like us, who don't think like us, so that we won't be corrupted by them, and to just kind of wait it out until Christ comes back Mm -hmm. to the degree that we do engage with people who are not like us, who are outside the church. It is to try to get them to think like us mm. or become mm. one of us by proselytization or conversion. And so that meant that our church life was all-consuming. We went to church, obviously, on Sundays, but all of our relationships were with church members. We went to lots of meetings during the week. Any social gatherings would have been mostly with people from the church as well.
1: Yeah,
0: And I went to elementary school out of church at a school run by the church. The only students at the school were children of church members. Mm. Everyone who taught at the school was a church member. Those were were requirements. Wow. So this is a very closed system built around a cult of personality around the leader or leaders. It became one leader over time, C.J. Mahaney and that's that has a lot of hallmarks of cultishness Mm -hmm. um Mm -hmm. and so it it also allows for a lot of control over what people think and believe and how they Mm -hmm. act Mm There was some of that uh there was a lot of we i don't know i don't know how far we got into this thing called the shepherding movement there was some of that that came into our church as well where people were basically required to hand over control of major decisions to to a counselor of some sort yeah um and that's just i think we all know at this point not all but i think we i think we know like that's not going to turn out well
1: it it sounds very colonial era puritans um the church was the center of life and all up in your business in a way that probably didn't need to be um and and yeah, so so you grow up in this environment and then you talk about (laughs) when you're about 20 years old your radicalization and i just i want people mm-hmm. to understand like you were not tangentially involved in this movement like you for a season were all in so so tell us about this radicalization that you endured or went through sure.
0: and and it's also important to point out to people that the early part of my life in church growing up and as a young teenager and into my high school years our church was pretty charismatic mm-hmm. and our theology was probably a secondary concern mm-hmm. And the time that I um, became radicalized in college, we were taking a hard turn towards uh, pretty severe Calvinism.
1: Mm. Uh,
0: And so I I kind of experienced two major streams of evangelicalism, which are pretty different. Yeah. Both highly influential um, and play very different roles in American political life as well. And I use two leaders from these different streams as archetypes to kind of illustrate those stories um Mahaney being one Lou Angle being another who's mm. kind of works with guy named Cheyenne they're part of the new apostolic reformation which a lot of scholars have heard about yeah um and so yeah around age 20 I am kind of flirting with partying and drinking and and not not really all that wild stuff like I really had the fear of God drilled into uh-huh. me growing up but I started to flirt with that sort of thing and the, the church kind of you know started to to recognize that in me and other people they hired some people on staff to reel us back in and they met with us did bible studies and but i had a i had a very you know intense religious experience um and for about three or four years i i was as you said all in i became a small group leader um i became a teacher at the high school mm. at the church ran um and so i i literally at times i think physically felt like at, on the tail at the tail end of those years that i was going to suffocate because I, there mm-hmm. was just so much sameness and mm-hmm. agreement and i think constitutionally i get uncomfortable when everybody is saying the same thing anyway i need there to be some dissenting voices around mm-hmm. um and i think that's really really important for all of us to have Voices in our life that are quite are saying things that are quite different than what we think. It keeps us honest, keeps us from radicalizing, Mm. you know. Um, So but yeah, I I was. uh, I was young, restless and reformed, I guess.
1: (laughs) I know that world well. Absolutely. Um, When did things start to shift for you so you said you know a period of about three four years or so yeah. was there an event or a series of events that started to to bring you to that place where it's like i need these other voices that that feeling of suffocation that you, you you described, was there something that helped you breathe more freely
0: it was really just coming to the end of myself because our church took the idea of all of us having in original sin Mm-hmm. uh extremely seriously and i took my faith extremely seriously
1: yeah
0: and we had this culture of um self-shaming over uh young men looking at pornography and masturbating and we would meet in groups of young men and talk about this just not optimal not right. optimal
1: um blind leading the blind <laughs>
0: And I write about that in the book. So anybody who wants to, to vicariously experience really uncomfortable meetings in Starbucks, that's, that's, that's your reason to go buy the book. But <laughs> but um, but it really, I just, I, by the end of the, the time there, I would have kind of done anything to get out of there. And I basically just mm. told the guy overseeing the small groups, the pastor, I was like, I can't. I can't I I'm I'm looking at uh, too much porn and I can't I can't stop. I I can't be a leader anymore, you know.
1: Um You just you just turned it right back on them. You said I know they'll 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 cut me loose if I say this.
0: I mean, I really I really needed to get out. I knew yeah. it. But your 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 question also asked me like something about wh- when did I begin to shift or something like yeah. that. And I think another important, really important thing I'm trying to convey is that. While I went through a transition at that time of burning out on this intense religion and, and moving out of this uh, very closed loop of relationships and life, overall in my life, my transition into a different way of thinking about faith and a different way of applying faith to politics has been a very very long process. Mm -hmm. And I do think that's really important to stress because I think it's important in two ways. Again, generally, if we know somebody else who we love and we want to see them grow and evolve in any direction or in any way that we think is more healthy, Mm -hmm. no matter what that World is or worldview they're coming from. It's gonna take time. It's gonna Mm -hmm. take a lot of patience. It's gonna take us loving them more than trying to tell them how they're wrong.
1: Yeah, yeah.
0: And then I think the second reason it's important is because for somebody who's not grown up in a in a faith setting like this, I think it's important to understand how, if especially for people who are raised in this in these kinds of environments, the indoctrination is very deep, and it takes a very long time. I'm not saying that anybody should reject it all. I'm just saying it takes a very long time to think through your own set of beliefs and thoughts on things. It's not something that just happens overnight because you know what? We're all busy. We're all living lives. We're all trying to pay the bills Mm -hmm. and move our careers along and care for our loved ones. And so that takes up a lot of time too. So very few people have the time to just read books all day or whatever. (laughs)
1: Yeah. Yeah. I feel indicted as a as a professor. Oh no, I wasn't even saying that about <laughs> no you. Me you. I Although know. I have a lot of time to read books today. <laughs> yeah. Um, I am so intrigued by this statement, you write. Um, journalism has made me more of a Christian, a better Christian. So I'd love for you to talk about why that is, or how, or how you think journalism has impacted your faith. But then I, I also want to talk about other journalists and 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 how you see you know i i get the impression that there are a lot of journalists with with a faith background and maybe even an evangelical one but they're not nearly as willing to talk about it as you have so i'm just curious about your thoughts on the state of faith in journalists and journalism yeah
0: when i say that christianity made me or journalism made me a better christian i'm referring back in a lot of a lot of what I'm saying is referring back to those habits of mind that I talked, that we talked about at the very beginning, uh, the sense of certainty without knowledge, which mm-hmm. is also a lack of discernment.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Uh, journalism has trained me in how to exercise discernment.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Um, and it's trained me in how to go out and search for wisdom and knowledge, as my father taught me when he read me the Proverbs. And those—that was an ama- one of the amazing things about working on any kind of book like this—is you piece together your past and make connections, and things emerge that you didn't see were there. And and I saw that the way that my dad read the Proverbs to me every day, almost, and those verses from the first few chapters of Proverbs about seeking wisdom and though it costs all you have, get understanding—I be- have begun to see like those things stuck with me and are part of the reason why. I've come into conflict with my parents and many people mm. like him is because I've I've taken it to heart. Not that they haven't, I'm not trying to say that, but but yeah, I um I'm I'm losing the thread here though. What was the original question?
1: Yeah, no, that 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 just unpacking that quote and 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 I love the way you say it it made, it made you um get better at discernment. And and this is just my thing is I look very closely at the way journalists sort of cover religion especially evangelicalism and and things in that world. And what I'm discovering is a lot of journalists have some sort of faith background, either in their past or something that they're practicing now, but there's very few that would talk about it, let alone write a book about it. And I'm wondering if you see the same thing or what, what kind of is in your view, how you've experienced other journalists in, in relation to their own kind of faith journey.
0: Yeah, and, I, and I'm cognizant of the fact that you were just recently at the Faith Angle Forum, which may <laughs> have played some role in this.
1: Which that's is right. Great. That's right. It I'm does. On the
0: advisory. I'm on the advisory council of the Faith Angle Forum, and Josh Good, who runs that
1: mm-hmm. institution,
0: doing a great job.
1: Mm-hmm. And
0: I would say that's one of the vehicles that's helped me come to some of the same realizations that you have. There's also a group of, I would say 20 or so journalists who most of them have no connection to the Faith Angle Forum, tend to be younger, who are all from some Christian background or another, active faith life, who are kind of getting together hmm. on a semi-regular basis. And I think your observation is correct that a lot of and there's people who I work with at Yahoo who, who come from a, a, a very, very devout faith background. Um, so yeah, I think you're right that there is a a reticence to sort of put it out there. There there are people at places like the dispatch places that lean, right? Obviously people, people at like turning point USA kind of use faith as "Mm -hmm, trying to be charitable here. Um, it just seems like more of an in your face thing. We'll just Mm -hmm. say that Mm -hmm. I don't want to judge their motives, but it's definitely in your face. And then there's places like the dispatch where I think people feel a little more flexibility. And then there's places I think in the mainstream space there's less less openness about that. So yeah. actually, as we're talking, I I do hope that like my book encourages other people
1: yeah to talk about it more.
0: And I I do sense that there is more willingness to do that. I think media institutions are 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 realizing that they need to explore this space more. I think mm-hmm. you look at the New York times, the amount of moderate conservative Christian and religious figures that they've brought on to write uh, mostly opinion because mm-hmm. uh, that, because that is where you're going to get more identification That's right. of sort of belief system or point of view. But I could, rattle off five or six right now i mean david right. french he's collie tish warren um they've also hired more religion reporters liz Diaz, uh liz brunig and others so i think the times is a clear example of a realization that this needs to be more of a focus i think another factor might be just a you know a, a perception that putting yourself out there as a christian is seen as proselytizing right um and i i, I can identify with that i i and I have to say, as a reporter, I've never wanted to go out and say, I am X, Y, Z, and the other thing. I just wanted to go out and report as fairly as possible and, uh, and not put myself in a position of advocating for any one view. So those are some of the factors that go into that, I think.
1: No, that is a phenomenally helpful answer. Are you at all... Did you, did you give any thought about how writing this book and being open about your journey, whether that would affect you professionally at all? Yeah, I've thought about that. Mm-hmm. <laughs> My hope <laughs> is that what you said is exactly what happens and that it, it sort of opens a doorway for other journalists to talk uh, more openly about it because it's part of their background. We all have a perspective, even when we're doing, you know, just straight reporting, right? So yeah. Um, that's my hope for the book. But I do yes. you know, appreciate your courage as a journalist putting this this book into the world. Um, one of the things that you said earlier it brings up a, a constant debate I have with myself. So you were talking about how helpful it has been for you to have voices in your life with different viewpoints, even that you might disagree with. And of course, there are, are you know real world applications around that. But let let's let's take it to Star Wars. <laughs> and I'm thinking about like the Rebel Alliance. You know, the, we are we are it's it's the way the story is told. We we are um, given the message that that the Rebel cause is the righteous cause, right? So, I mean, in that sort of scenario, right, where you're you're pursuing justice, you're pursuing love of neighbor what does it look like to have like dissenting voices because immediately when you say that in 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 our world my mind goes to well i need more like republicans or trumpers in my life i mean how how do you how do you explain or or parse that (laughs) um
0: well a distinction that often gets lost is between relational or interpersonal and public and professional hmm. public professionals, one setting interpersonal relational is another. And I think the interpersonal relational space is one where there's more freedom and safety to engage in friendship with people who have different backgrounds and see the world differently and think different thoughts. And, um, you know, you're going to want to be looking for people who are also asking questions in good faith. And Mm. looking for understanding and seeking to be curious as much as, and and sometimes that can be hard to find. The thing about journalism that I think also ties back to how it's made me a better Christian is that it's given me an excuse or a passport, or um, you know, a a free excuse to seek people out and ask Mm. them questions. Yep. And you were part of that. You know, back in 2017, you know, I came to you with questions, came to others with questions as I was working. And I was, I was. There was a, there was an interaction between my public life and my personal, you know, point of view. Um, and then, you know, if, if you are out there advocate advocating for a set of principles, or policies, or outcomes, or groups, that's just a different a different venue it doesn't mean you can't engage in good faith debate or even engage in bad faith. debate. Hopefully you're not in bad faith, but in debate with people who might not be in good faith. Right. I mean, that's just a different, different setting. I think, I think what I'm mostly talking about is the work that we're doing on ourselves. Mm. But I do think institutionally, even, you know, adv- advocacy groups, and maybe that's going to be internal too. But to keep yourself sharp, you do want to engage with the best arguments that
1: Mm.
0: contravene where you're coming from. I mean, that's what lawyers do when they're preparing for arguments, if nothing else, then to make their arguments better. I mean, to know your opponent's arguments makes your argument better. So it's a time and place thing. You know, it's time and place is what came to mind when thinking about identifying as a Christian as a journalist, because... It's not appropriate for every journalist necessarily do, to do that.
1: Very wise, <laughs> thoughtful responses. I appreciate it. Um, as, as we sort of wrap up here, let's, let's talk about more contemporary things. I mean, the elephant in, in the room in, in terms of how the evangelical movement failed a generation, I think a lot of people would look at Trump and Trumpism and so there's obviously way too much to talk about around that but but as you are perceiving the landscape um what do you think what do you think Trump and Trumpism is teaching us what what lessons should we be attuned to as we see this incredible political support from evangelicals for this person and this movement more broadly um what what are we gleaning from from this era?
0: I don't know if you saw Tim Alberta's piece in the Atlantic about, or basically arguing that evangelical support for Trump is less locked in than it was the last two elections. He's got some reporting to indicate that might be true. I, I'm a little skeptical that it's that it's not going to be the same. Mm. Um, like in other words i think it's quite likely that we see similar to similar levels of support for trump from evangelicalism i'm i'm uh, open to being wrong obviously would, would like to be wrong i think I, I man i think what it tells us is that a lot of evangelicalism and i'm borrowing this language from greg thompson um is a uh, cultural project disguised as a theological project Mm. and uh, he might be borrowing that language from somebody else but I think that was one of the big things that came out of the last several years is a lot of things that seemed to be held up as moral ethical or religious principles beliefs or political positions were revealed as more just pragmatic political for the sake of power self-preservation somebody like Hugh Hewitt you know, would argue that conservatives got the Supreme Court that they wanted, and so everything else was worth it because they've been able to get rid of Roe versus Wade. And I know people personally who believe some version of that. It's it's a somewhat oversimplified view, but that's the basic gist of it. Mm-hmm. And... um I acknowledge that they they got the outcome on abortion law nationally that they wanted my pushback though on abortion is that most of the time that people sold the Supreme Court as the be all end all they were their rhetoric was saying that abortion would be ended or outlawed, and of course that's not the case now, like abortion is still legal in much of the country, so I think that reduces the argument's power to say we we had all these costs from Trump, but we gained you know, um the, the, the victory over Roe and abortion's over. Well no abortion's not over. So if you're anti-abortion in most or all cases, you actually didn't get all of the outcomes that you were promised right. from from Trump's Supreme Court. But, but I you know, but I think going back to 2016, my basic point in the book is that it was pretty clear that Trump didn't um didn't care and or or have much respect for um the rule of law, our constitutional order, and 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 democratic freedoms, or the notion of truth. And when I say truth, I mean just sort of observable, knowable truth. I'm not talking about ultimate truth or philosophical truth. Um, and he, you know, he, he pretty intentionally went after the idea that we could know truth by his kind of intentional assault on reality. I mean, his claim that You know, there were more people at his inauguration than Obama's. I think that's the way you put it. But, you know, there was clear photographic evidence that there were what are you saying was not true? And there was just sort of intentional, obvious, provably false lie after lie like that. And then you get into the 2020 election and he's lying day after day after day in ways, that again, that are provably false about um, election fraud and voting by mail and all these things. So I think January 6th kind of made it pretty clear that all of his disregard for our democratic order and the freedoms that protect our ability to advocate for whatever cause we, we care about, um, his disregard for all that was quite actionable on his part. And so I think given all that, the role of a, of, a, of a faith group in response to somebody like that who says, I'll protect you, should be to rely on their faith rather than on the political figure. And I think, unfortunately, a lot of people relied on the political figure rather than on testing the reality of their faith claims. Um, so I think that just exposed a lot of evangelical political engagement as driven by pragmatism and self-preservation.
1: Well, I can say from personal interaction that you're someone who really lives out the this idea of being genuinely curious, open to changing your thoughts, and just as importantly, open to living out your faith and your belief your faith and your belief with integrity. So I, I am very grateful for the gift of this book testimony of uh, that you've given us, which tells us so much about you and your life as well as about this broader evangelical movement. Book is out April 18th, 2023. It's available for pre-order now wherever books are sold. If you want to find out more about the book, go to John Ward Wrights, J O N johnwardwrites.org. And you can find out more information there. John, I'm really excited for this book to be in the world. And thank you so much for coming on footnotes to tell us about it. We appreciate you.
0: Yeah, Jamar, thank you for that. I really appreciate you a lot. And I see you as as a fellow traveler on that same quest for honesty. Authentic faith, and just you know, seeking reality, seeking ultimate reality, and seeking reality in general. And uh, so, I'm I'm privileged to to be on the road with you.
1: Thank you, sir. Best for your for your book launch, and many many people reading it and being changed by it. We'll talk to you soon.